Okay. Well, good afternoon. How are we doing out there? Yeah? Middle of the retreat. You've been off of um, email, I hope. <laughs> I haven't. And I'm going to bring you some news. Hot off the Huffington Post. When Vanda was 20, her parents called her into the living room to deliver some bad news. Her mother proceeded to tell her very matter-of-factly that her father had been arrested on charges of sexual assault. Her dad, who ran a prison pharmacy in southeast England and was home awaiting his trial, sat there stone-faced while Vanda, a music student at a Manchester college, sank into the family's green couch in shock. I just couldn't add it up in my head that this person had done this thing, this now 50-year-old librarian who lives in Ohio told the HuffPost. He was an authority in the local church and a respected person. Nothing in his life gave any clue to him being someone who could possibly go to jail for anything. Even though her dad was later found guilty of forcing a nurse at the prison to give him oral sex twice, and eventually sentenced to two and a half years in prison as a result, Vanda, who asked that her last name be withheld to protect her privacy, desperately clung to her parents' initial claim that her father's accuser was a liar. Even when his case appeared in the local news, she didn't want to process the reality that the man she was raised to trust was capable of such disgusting behavior. So behind the many high-profile men who have been accused of sexual misconduct in the past few months are spouses, family members, colleagues, and friends struggling to make sense of how the people they love could commit such heinous acts. Last week on the Today Show, Savannah Guthrie shakingly asked, how do you reconcile your love for someone with the revelation that they have behaved badly? hours after learning that her co-host, Matt Lauer, had been fired over allegations of sexual harassment. Sarah Silverman said about the allegations against comedian Louis C.K., can you love someone who did bad things? But because sexual offenses often produce a ripple effect, trauma can also land on an offender's closest friends and family, and in some celebrity cases, even their friends or their fans. These loved ones, commonly referred to as secondary victims, must grapple with whether to continue a relationship that now feels duplicitous. You can't just turn off having cared for someone for so long, she said. You're in this place where you're feeling two opposing emotions at the same time, and it's a horrible place to be. Though it might be more reassuring to think of sex offenders as monsters, that we can spot in plain sight. The reality is much more complex than that. Predators are also people who sit around family dinner tables with their children, celebrate anniversaries with their spouses, and have close relationships with their siblings. As a result, partners and family members who feel attached to predators might choose to stay in their lives despite criminal behavior. An Ottawa-based psychiatrist Paul Federoff 
run support groups for spouses and loved ones who want to have ongoing relationships with sex offenders. He tells them it's possible to to compartmentalize feelings of love and hate. They have a right to feel different about the person than they do about the crime. Being in love with your husband doesn't mean that you are not acknowledging the crime that he did is reprehensible. It's a myth that sex offenders are unchangeable, also, he said. There's nothing wrong with loving a man who has changed and who's no longer offending, but that doesn't mean they have to forgive the past offense or excuse it in any way. Complexity, huh? A lot of complexity in this human condition that we live in. Not so black and white. I think navigating our relationships and our thoughts and emotions with our values and all of our histories, our personal histories, our, our historical, cultural histories, it's just not easy. Last night's Dharma talk that Devin gave just... I don't even know what to say. It was speechless for me. There was so much complexity in everything that he said, tied up in this disgraceful history of this country's relationship with slavery and the personal history between descendants. It's all so complex. Is the institution of slavery something that can be forgiven? Can these sexual predators be forgiven? Can the thing that you regret the most, that has caused the most harm to someone else that you love, can it be forgiven? So I didn't mean to start off so but how are you guys doing out there? <laughs> We're kind of midway through this retreat, and you're probably finding out that um, retreat practice here at Spirit Rock isn't necessarily what you expect, or even what you want. But it is usually what you need. And I have to say that the same is true with us up here as well, right? Um, It is what I needed, this retreat. So when Larry put this retreat together and I was asked to be a part of it, I immediately said yes, couldn't wait. I didn't know how relevant it would be for me personally. So... Tonight, I'm asked to talk about the outward expression of forgiveness, um, asking for forgiveness from harm that you may have caused, and forgiving someone else for the harm that they've caused you. Well, as time passed, I ended up in a situation, personally, that is really, really difficult. I'm in a really difficult situation right now around forgiveness. And it felt hypocritical and I was going to give a Dharma talk on forgiveness, and I'm, I'm in a really interesting process right now. And so 
I actually am in a deep situation of betrayal. Um, and I'm going to ask for confidentiality because I'm going to say some things that people may start figuring out what the hell I'm talking about. But I am in this deep situation of betrayal with some folks. And um, it's been super hurtful. And I'm struggling. I'm struggling to forgive fully. I've been through the steps. And so I thought, well, if I'm going to do this talk, it's going to be real. So we're going to go real and kind of take you through some of my process. You up for that? Do I have your confidentiality? Thank you. So I can truthfully say that preparing for this retreat and for this talk has helped me immensely on moving it forward. Um, so, again, it's not what I wanted, but it's what I got. Right. Earlier, I think it was the first night, Larry mentioned something about the range of human experiences. And, and we are capable, as human beings, of so many things. So many kinds of experiences that are complex, that are joyful and that are painful, that are hurtful. But before going any further, what I want to do, and particularly something happened this morning that um, I want to shed light on, um, a question that was asked. And I want to talk about the difference between pain and suffering, because it's a part of this whole talk. The difference between pain and suffering. Because from a Buddhist perspective, there is a difference, right? So life, and in life, we experience both of them a lot. So I would say that pain is the experience we have that is just a natural part of life. Life hurts, right? There's a lot of things that happen that hurt, physically, emotionally, psychologically. Suffering is the choice we make on how we relate to the experience of pain. So notice I said choice. Suffering is the choice we make on how we relate to the experience of pain. So there's this metaphor that is often used about the arrows. Some of you probably have heard it before, about, you know, life, the pain of life is like being shot by an arrow, right? And it hurts, there's pain. But then suffering is when then you shoot yourself with more arrows, Right, because what you're doing is you're taking that that one pain and exacerbating it through our through not being clear, through a lack of of wisdom that we have, we make the pain and turn it into suffering. Suffering is a choice, and that's why the Buddha said, you know, his famous saying is that. I taught one thing and one thing only, that is suffering and the cessation of suffering. He didn't say pain, right? 
So what we're doing here with this practice is looking at when we bring suffering into our lives and how we can make a different choice. So the range of hurtful experiences that we have being in this human body, they seem endless. A lot of pain, a lot of suffering. So many stories of suffering. You know, I grew up in a household that music was a big part of our landscape. My mother loved music, and we had it on all the time, and she specifically loved the blues. And the blues is a genre of music specifically designed to talk about pain and suffering. (laughs) I mean, there's no other genre. It's like, that's what it's for. And I grew up listening to that. I know the lyrics to most of them. And I knew when things were rough, because my mom, who we call Kettle, would start singing a song. And it was a way of, I think, living out the suffering and the pain that she was having without, you know, beating somebody up. So she sang these songs. And so, and if you ever listen to the lyrics to blue songs, oh my God, they're like really bad choices people are making. <laughs> so, really, really bad choices. One of my favorite songs, CC, I should sing it, but I won't, I won't, I won't do it. CC Rider. You guys know the song CC Rider, right? C.C. Ryder, see what you have done. C.C. Ryder, see what you have done. You made me love you. Now your gal has come. C.C. Ryder, where did you stay last night? Oh, Lord, your shoes ain't buttoned and your clothes don't fit you right. You didn't come home till the sun was shining bright. I'm going to buy me a pistol just as long as I am tall. Oh, Lord, shoot my man and catch me a cannonball. And if he won't have me, he won't have no gal at all. I'm going away, baby. I won't be back till fall. Lord, I'm going away, baby. Won't be back till fall. And if I find me a good man, I won't be back at all. I mean, really. (laughs) Right? Definitely not taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. (laughs) That is like... (laughs) Those are the messages I grew up with, right? So how do we do it differently? (laughs) Really. I mean, those are real feelings, right? Those are real feelings. Those are real things that happen and are happening. Yeah. Freeing ourselves from the grip of emotions is really a tough one. And responding instead with wisdom and compassion. You know, Larry said something, I think, I'm going to keep quoting Larry. I noticed I said Larry, Larry, Larry in here. Sorry, Larry. But um, He said something uh, the other night about the possibility, of, the possibility of freedom is not dependent on externalities. You remember him saying that? The possibility of freedom is not dependent upon externalities that we have choice points, right? And so how do we develop the capacity to choose that wisdom and compassion and loving kindness, to respond to life from that place, to face life's joys and sorrows from that place? 
What I know is that reacting from an afflicted mind and a closed heart doesn't work. It's just not possible. And Devin's story last night showed us what can happen when a window opens up to the possibility of forgiveness. It was beautiful. So the name of this retreat, The Courage to Live, The Practice of Forgiveness. Larry, I love the, you named it that? It's so appropriate. It's really a great title because it is about the courage to live. I mean, we can survive and keep going, but living, it takes a massive amount of courage to live again once you've been hurt to the core. Because you can keep that same story going. It's so much easier. It takes a lot of courage to cultivate the reopening of the heart and the mind. Because I think one of the things that we like to do is we like to think that we can change the situation or change the people, the other person, the perpetrator. But what's done is done. My friend Sylvia Bornstein always says, it's not what I wanted, but it's what I got. And Devin said the other night, and now it's like this. Right? Trying to control the uncontrollable is just more suffering. Or wishing it were different. Good luck with that. Right? Just more suffering. Accepting what is and committing to changing and freeing yourself from the suffering and the causes of suffering by opening up the heart and the mind is the pathway to freedom. So, back to my story. So it it actually took me a minute to actually accept what was happening to me with my, my peeps, who I thought were my peeps. It's definitely not what I wanted, but it was what I got people I trusted, they really, really let me down. What I think happened is that the person, the main person involved, wanted something that she couldn't achieve on her own and thought that somehow by bringing me down or doing something to me would help her get to where she needed to get. And it was pretty devastating. Um... I sought out a lot of help. I talked to my teachers. um, And uh, my mentors, my family, my friends. I was swirling in a lot of confusion of how to handle this. I knew that there was a way out, you know, because I know the Dharma, but I couldn't access it. I couldn't access it, truth be told. Not yet. So, you know, the tools that I use in my life in not ex- these kinds of extreme circumstances is Cindy Metta, because that's something I actually do naturally. I do it all the time. 
I do it all the time. I see, you know, roadkill on the road. You know, oh, money, put me home, oh, money, put me home. I hear of sirens, oh, money, put me Every time I'm in traffic and I know that there's been an accident, oh, money, put me I mean, I'm constantly sending or sending metta, may you be safe, may you be safe. You know, it's a natural part of my beingness at this point in time. Um, it is a practice that works for me. It keeps my heart light. It keeps me in love with, with the world, with life. And so it's a real natural part of my life. So for me not to be able to access that was huge. I know the gift that it gives the heart to be able to rest in a place of peace. But I wasn't ready to, to let go and to go towards forgiveness for a while. But I know the tools to do it. And like I said, the, the metta practice is, and the compassion practice is something that dials down the static of an agitated mind. And Devin used that metaphor of the radio and it kind of turns up the radio frequency of awareness and compassion. That's what these practices do. But acts of betrayal and abuse and trauma and really acts that hurt us the most that we actually want forgiveness for, or that we even want to give our forgiveness if, it's, if we did it. They tend to create a mind that is vengeful, hard, angry, agitated, definitely not at peace, and a heart that's shut down. And that's what happened for me, which is, not my nature. Actually, I was so distraught at one point that um, I actually ended up in the hospital. And I left there. um, When I got out of the hospital, I really realized, okay, this is really crazy, and I needed to remove myself from the situation which is what I did. I have to tell you that this is not a happily ever after story. Okay. Um, but there's a process that hopefully will be helpful because I lost all trust. And um, as soon as I got out of the hospital, it happened that the, our Spirit Rock teacher training co- uh, cohort that I'm in was meeting during that week. And I was in the hospital, missing it. And as soon as I got out, um, I got in a car and drove straight up here to, um, to the retreat, which was at Ions. Because you know, it was the medicine that I knew I needed. Even though, you know, people who loved me, my sister and my partner, were like, you just got out of the hospital, you got to stay home. I knew what I needed, and I went straight there. And I surrounded myself with my Dharma siblings and teachers and 
And it was exactly what I needed. Um, Jack is my mentor in the Dharma teacher training, Jack Cornfield, and um, we spent a good hour together, or more, more than that, him really helping me through it. So then I went home after the end of the retreat, and, um, and I have a lot of Dharma books. My house, my bedroom is, God, I need a bookcase. Oh my God, they're everywhere. Um, I have a ton of Dharma books everywhere, partially written. I'm a, a read, some fully read, you know, I collect Dharma books. And um, I happened to pick this one up. The Teachings of the Buddha, edited by Jack Cornfield. And I went to page four, right? First page after, you know, a few things. I, and it says, it was the Dhammapada. This, now this, 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 this message is, this lesson is, it's not like it's so deep and heavy, but for me at the time, you know, you get just what you need when you need it. I'm going to read it to you. We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts, we make the world. Speak or act with an impure mind, and trouble will follow you, as the will follows the ox that draws the cart. We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts, we make the world. Speak or act with a pure mind, with a pure mind, and happiness will follow you, as your shadow, unshakable. How can a troubled mind understand the way? Your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own thoughts unguarded. But once mastered, no one can help us as much, not even your father or your mother. Your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your thoughts unguarded. For some reason, those words really just like flipped a a light switch for me, right? Because I was being held hostage by my thoughts, my angry thoughts. I mean, I didn't even know myself. I didn't know this Kanda who had so much anger in her. And I knew I had to let it go. I had to soften my heart and cultivate compassion for these sentient beings who I actually cared deeply about. I needed to get the courage to live again, really. So the goal of forgiveness really is to work our way through our pain, loss, and trauma that limits our ability, that limits our ability to live a fully realized life. And it allows us to feed our starving hearts with compassion because freedom is on the other side. So I had to let go of the story, the story that I was right and they were wrong, the story that was swallowing me up, the story that was so repetitive in my mind that I would tell anyone who would listen (laughs) how badly I had been wronged and I became the story. I had to let go of it. 
but I didn't let go of the truth of the harm that that had actually happened, because it was true, and it was not cool. So let's talk a moment about forgiveness and what it's not. Let's start by what it's not. So mistakenly, we think sometimes that forgiveness, that you are somehow accepting or pardoning or an act that itself is unforgivable. That what has been done is okay. That is not forgiveness. It is not okay. Right? It is not okay. And a lot in our community, I'm going to bring up a little bit about spiritual bypass. Y'all know about spiritual bypass, where, you know, spiritual bypass is where we use our spiritual practices and beliefs to actually avoid dealing with painful feelings and unresolved wounds. And we'll use the spiritual thing and say, you know, everything's cool. Oh, it's okay. You know, I'm spiritual, I'm a Buddhist. Everything's okay. Not. (laughs) In fact, we must be clear that what happened was not okay. And we don't have to hate or hold a grudge. And it doesn't Forgiveness also doesn't mean that you forget what happened. Because to remember and acknowledge is an important part of forgiveness. As a matter of fact, I believe you should be wary of people who you have received harm from because they have already shown that they, are, they have the potential to harm you. So be smart with that. Be wary of that. That's Buddhist. And now you actually have more information about the person or the situation. And you can make a more informed decision to what extent do you trust them in the future. Some people have lost your trust, and that's okay too. And then you ask yourself, do I want to remain in the relationship with this person or not? Does the relationship change? So you can still forgive and change the nature of the relationship and not stay in the relationship. But keeping them in your heart, that's the paradox. Keeping them out of your life, but keeping them in your heart. So, two days ago, I received an email from a friend and teacher of mine, a woman named Lama Somo, and she's in an article that just came out in Lion's Roar, and it's a a conversation with her and Van Jones, and it's quite interesting when you get out, I recommend you read it, Um, not while you're here. (laughs) Um... 
And they're talking about the divisiveness that's happening around politics in our country right now. Is there anything else to talk about? Um, the othering and polarities between people who don't agree with each other. You know, it's a conversation about that from their perspective, from Van's Love Army perspective, and Lama Somo, who is a um, Tibetan Buddhist, Vajrayana. So in our email exchange, I read the article and I said to her how difficult it is for the human brain to handle paradoxes. You know, the paradox of keeping all people in your heart just because they are human beings on this planet trying to negotiate life just like you. Just like you. And yet, you totally disagree with their misogynistic, racist, xenophobic, homophobic, harmful views. How do both of these things exist in the same place? Having the ability to keep no one out of your heart and yet disavow everything they stand for. Like the sexual predators that I mentioned earlier. That must be a really tough situation to find that out. Can you imagine? Someone that you love that, and you find that out. It's a paradox holding those two things. But the pathway, the pathway to holding and meeting that paradox, I believe, is in this practice. So in my situation, back to that, I've made a decision that they, these people and this person particularly will no longer be in my life. That's just what it is for me. And my heart is at peace now, actually. Um, And I have a lot of compassion for them because I always did love them. And that love hasn't changed. And I'm able to access it now. Because I know their stories, you know, they know mine. I'm not mad. I'm not mad any longer but I'm keeping a distance. And that's just what, how it's going to work for me, at least for now, for now. Oh, I'm feeling another blues song coming on. <laughs> Ma Rainey's The Runaway Blues. I'll run away tomorrow. They don't mean me no good. I'll run away tomorrow. They don't mean me no good. I'm going to run away, have to leave this neighborhood. That's just the first paragraph. I won't go into the next. But unlike the song, I didn't run away. I'm just making a choice, making a choice. Another mistaken impression about forgiveness is that um, it implies that you're weak or not standing up for yourself, not standing up against evil acts, especially people around you. Have you noticed that? People who love you, really. I mean, in the situation I'm in right now, I live with my sister, and, and she's more upset than I am. She's like, what? You talking to those people? You forgive? No, mm-mm. You know, and it's like, and it feels like I've made a mistake to forgive, right? I've made the mistake, um, and implying that I'm weak, that I shouldn't be doing that. 
that pressure can happen to you from the outside. I know you've all been there. Similarly, I find particularly relevant in the activist community, which I am a card-carrying member of, is a belief that if you forgive or allow others to forgive, justice will not be served. Mainly because people will lose the resolve necessary for action. That's the, the assumption here is that it takes anger and unrelenting fury to achieve justice. Right? Wrong. Unrelenting fury is definitely has its place in getting things kick-started. But it's love that spurs justice. And as Larry mentioned, again, it's because we love so hard this world, these people, the, the planet. It's because we love so hard that we stand for justice. And in the words of Dr. Cornell West, justice is what love looks like in public. Justice is what love looks like in public. So forgiveness is not about accepting that which is unacceptable. It's not about surrendering to defeat. It's not about being weak or avoiding the cost of justice. Forgiveness is about how you compassionately hold in your heart a terrible wrong while acting in the world to correct that wrong and try to prevent it from ever happening again. I'm going to say that one more time. Forgiveness is about how you compassionately hold in your heart a terrible wrong while acting in the world to correct to correct that wrong and try to prevent it from ever happening again. Devin's story says it all, really. Forgiveness is not weak. It demands courage and integrity. So I looked up the definition of forgiveness in Webster. It says forgive Stop feeling angry or resentful towards someone for an offense, flaw, or mistake. Martin Luther King Jr., Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, first of all, it's a pardon. It is a fresh start, another chance, a new beginning. Very different than Webster. Right? I think he takes a, a little bit of a deeper dive. A new beginning, a fresh start. From what? From the story, from suffering. Forgiveness is a way to end suffering, to bring dignity and harmony back into your life, to reclaim our energy and our sense of balance and equanimity. Forgiveness is, is it's fundamentally for our own sake. To bring dignity, I mean, for our own mental health and well-being. Because as we feel the pain that we hold, it is really a way to release the pain that we're carrying. It really is the medicine for suffering. 
Some of you may have heard this story before. We, it's been said in many rooms like this, but I'll repeat it because it's so apropos. The story of the two ex-prisoners of war who meet many years afterwards. And when the first one asks, have you forgiven your captors yet? And the second man answers, no, never. Well, then the first man replies, they still have you in prison. Not to forgive gives more rise to suffering. And forgiveness also has the potential to cease the cycle of suffering. Because the suffering has, there's the hatred involved, and hatred creates more suffering, which creates more hatred, which continues this cycle. You know, I had um, an, uh, an opportunity to go to Gaza um, as a filmmaker. And it was, um, I was capturing stories from, from people. And I was with this mother, this, this woman from Gaza, and I was actually at her daughter's recital. Her daughter was on stage having a recital in Gaza, and we were in, and they're talking. And what she said to me was really, I'll never forget, she had so much grief for her daughter growing up in the situation between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Her daughter had experienced the bombing of Gaza in the Operation Cast Lead. And her daughter was showing and saying signs of hatred for the Israelis. And her mother was trying so hard to end that cycle of violence by humanizing both sides. She knew that the only answer to end suffering was compassion and forgiveness. Forgiving is ending the violence in your heart that's filled with resentment and bitterness, giving up hatred, forgiving the harm done to us by others, allowing us to move on and to, to really achieve peace in our, in our heads and in our minds and to open our hearts again. When you forgive someone, you're letting go of these hurtful feelings that are really only hurting you. There's this saying, harboring resentment and hatred It's like drinking poison and expecting someone else to die. And then sometimes it gets a little perverse too because there's this, you can get this kind of suffering that is almost you feel entitled to it. Do you know? Where you start, you go into the entitlement place of being injured and it becomes your identity. Is it hard to imagine yourself without it? Forgiveness strips that away. Stopping the repeated story in our minds. The courage to live. And sometimes we feel like we can't forgive unless the other person apologizes. Right? And shows some remorse. But guess what? That may never happen. 
Remember, it's not about them. Nor is it about who is right and who is wrong. You know, that righteousness, choosing righteousness over kindness. The question is, do you want to be right or do you want to be free? Because the power of forgiveness lies within our hearts. It's not about the other person. And it's really difficult to accept that there may not be a recipient on the other end or someone coming back to you and saying, giving you what you need, what you think you need. But forgiveness is not a transaction. It's not like, give me two remorses and I'll give you one forgiveness. (laughs) You know, (laughs) it doesn't work that way. It's not a transaction. Or you may be fortunate and, and the person, you know, that they, they actually ask for your forgiveness. And hopefully you'll accept it and gain the peace that you need and in the whole situation. I do have a bit of a good pause in the story. About, I don't know, five weeks ago or so, the main person that led this betrayal profusely apologized to me. I didn't expect it at all. She said she messed up, streams of tears and just crying. She said she was sorry. She said it three times. I counted them. (laughs) I could have done with one more. (laughs) And prior to that, another person involved in the mess also apologized to me. And to be really honest, I haven't fully forgiven. I think I'm, I'm, I'm confused whether I have. I, I wrote this same sentence twice. I erased it. I've forgiven. No, I haven't. You, I haven't forgiven. Yes, I have. I've forgiven. No, I haven't. I don't know. I'm somewhere in it. I'm in the process. I'm in the mess of it, to be honest. But in my failure to fully forgive... As Larry has been saying, I am inclining myself towards freedom. That is for sure. Asking for forgiveness. The biggest step in apologizing to someone we have harmed is to first forgive ourselves. Devin talked about that very beautifully. It requires honesty and humility. And to be honest, also in my situation, I know that I have some things that I'm sorry for. Um, and I've been brutally honest with myself, and I put them in an email, and I you know, admitted that I could have done some things differently. But humility in our society is not, we're not big on humility in this hyper-individualistic society that we have, but it, it's often seen as weakness. But finding the courage to be humble is really important. I think it's a revolutionary act, actually. And what stops us sometimes from apologizing is, is again, this insatiable need to be right. And it's hard to admit that we're wrong. So apologizing, though, is an external way to let go of our suffering for the things that we have done and help others also to move on. 
So if you do give an apology, and what happens if they don't accept it? Who cares? Right? Just like, just like forgiveness, that's for ourselves. It's for yourself. It's to get your heart out of prison. Hmm. Time is passing quickly. So there's a lot of small acts of forgiveness. I think that's where we start. You know, like somebody forgot your birthday. Or you forgot someone's birthday. You know, things like that. You didn't respond to an email. Somebody didn't get back to you. Forgiving on those small acts of forgiveness. And then there's the huge acts of forgiveness, though. Forgiving the unforgivable. You know, those things that I call class action forgiveness. You know, what happened in um, Dylan Roof, the 23-year-old white supremacist mass murderer, Charleston, South Carolina. This is exactly from the local paper. The relatives of people slain inside the historic African-American church in Charleston, South Carolina, Carolina, earlier this week, were able to speak directly to the accused gunman Friday at his first court appearance. One by one, those who chose to, spoke, to speak at a bond hearing did not turn to anger. Instead, while he remained impassive, they offered him forgiveness and said they were praying for his soul, even as they described the pain of their losses. I forgive you, Nadine Collier, the daughter of 70-year-old Ethel Lance, said at a hearing, her voice breaking with emotion. You took something very precious from me. I'll never talk to her again. I will never, ever hold her again. But I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. Toni Morrison, one of my favorite authors, said about that. There's a quote from Toni. The really vile and violent and bestial treatment of slaves and their descendants did not succeed in making those descendants reproduce that violence and that corruption and bestiality. A contemporary example is the survivals in Charleston and the family members who were killed in that church did not say of the killer, I want him dead. It was something grander and more humane. It was eloquent and elegant, the response of forgiveness. We sometimes understand that Generosity as a kind of weakness, whereas I always thought that that was extreme strength. In Australia, I just came back from Australia, and um, the stolen generations, 50,000 children between 1860 and 1970s, taken away from their families, horrible, to convert them to being white Australians and Christians. The Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd, in February 2008, I don't know if you all saw this or remember this, I remember that day, um, gave an apology. We apologize especially for the removal of aboriginal, this is just an excerpt, we apologize especially for the removal of aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children from their families, their communities, and their country, for the pain, suffering, and hurt of these stolen generations, their descendants, and for their families left behind we say sorry to the mothers and fathers, the brothers and the sisters for the breaking up of families and communities. We say sorry. And for the indignity and and degradation thus inflicted on a proud people and a proud culture, we say sorry. 
We, the Parliament of Australia, respectively request that this apology be received in the spirit in which it is offered as a part of the healing of the nation. I know what you're thinking. (laughs) I won't say it. South Africa, the TRC, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, we know about that, the forgiveness there. Um, Something just happened November 28th this year in Canada. The new Canadian Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, Mr. Speaker, today we acknowledge an often overlooked part of Canada's history. Today we finally talk about Canada's role in the systemic oppression, criminalization, and violence against the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and two-spirited communities. And it is my hope that in talking about these injustices, vowing to never repeat them, and acting to right these wrongs, we can begin to heal. Mr. Speaker, the number one job of any government is to keep its citizens safe. And on this... We have failed the LGBTQ2 people time and time again. It is with shame and sorrow and deep regret for the things we have done that I stand here today and say, we were wrong. We apologize. I'm sorry. We are sorry. These are big moments. Big moments. I love this phrase, this quote that says, forgiveness means giving up all hope for a better past. So in closing, I just want to say that, you know, we're in this imperfect human body. We are, we make lots of mistakes, big ones, small ones. And it's really unrealistic to hold each other to some kind of perfection that doesn't exist. You know, and, and cast aspersions when we do the same thing that we're, we're, we do the same thing. Um, it's more like, here's a sentient being suffering from his or her greed, hatred, and delusion, and completely overwhelmed by them, just like what happens to me sometimes when I get taken away by them. We've all betrayed others. We've all hurt others, knowingly and unknowingly. We're actually all in this together. So when we forgive the unforgivable, it's not the offense that we are forgiving. Rather, it's humanity itself failing. It's what Larry calls his, the fifth noble truth, the forgiving the first noble truth. And in ending, I have a couple of quotes. It's impossible said pride. It's risky, said experience. It's pointless, said reason. Give it a try, whispered the heart. (laughs) And finally, in the words of our dear poet, writer, author, meditator, Miss Alice Walker, I think it pisses God off if you walk by the color purple in a field somewhere and don't notice it. (laughs) My friends, prepare your hearts to open because you never know when you may happen upon that field.
Thank you. And I think I have to ask for your forgiveness for going over time. Your walk is a little shorter. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.